Well, um, we are looking in the next couple of weeks, we're just going to do a few Sundays of transition as we move from Advent uh, and we move into, uh, before we get back into Ephesians or other series. So we're going to simply look at a couple of weeks at a couple of different topics. And this morning, I want to look at the idea of waiting, waiting. One of the aspects of the Advent season that is often emphasized is that in Advent, we are waiting. We are waiting along with those who came before Christ came. We go walk with them in the sense of waiting for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ in his first advent. And we are looking forward to the day of Christmas. We're waiting for Christmas Day. But in the same way, we as Christians, as ones who live between the first advent and the second advent, that the whole of Christianity in this season, in between the first and second advents, is one of waiting. We are waiting for the second coming of Christ, as we sang earlier, to come and push back the curse, to bring his blessings in all places around the world. And so we live as Christians as ones who wait. Waiting on God is a regular refrain in the life of faith as we see it in the scriptures. It is an expression of the healthy heart's desire to long for the Lord and long for his blessings to come. The call to wait is found throughout the scriptures and perhaps most particularly and beautifully in the Psalms. But we see it throughout the Old Testament, for example. They waited for their coming Messiah. They longed for the Messiah. We see it for those who responded to Jesus' coming in the Gospels. An old lady named Anna, an old man named Simeon, had waited their whole lives for the coming of the Messiah. In the church age, we wait as much as ever. The church has endured already two millennia of extended waiting, longing for Christ's returns. Christianity is a call to wait. And so we're going to look at a psalm this morning that calls us to wait. Psalm chapter 62 is where we are in God's Word. If you want to pull up, up in your Bible, where it should be hopefully on the screen here with the, on the YouTube page uh, embedded in it while I read it. Psalm 62, we'll read the whole chapter. It's to the choir master according to Jedithon, and it is a psalm of David. And here's what it says. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. The theme, what I want to begin with this morning is simply to say this, waiting is hard. 
Christianity is waiting, and waiting is hard. Waiting is a form of suffering. For, for so many Christians, the unique pain that rests just below the surface of our outward lives is the longing ache of having to wait. Waiting is difficult. The hardest things that I can think of in the Christian life, in my experience, has been twofold. One is forgiving, and the second is waiting. Forgiving and waiting. Waiting tests our faith. And for so many, the longing, or the, I'm sorry, the call that God puts in our lives, that he forces upon us, the call to wait, is for many of us the spring for so many of our doubts within our faith. In verse 3, the psalmist, and in this case it is King David himself, says, cries out, How long? How long? And he, he speaks of people who attack him and are gossiping about him and are lying about him. But the, the cry is one of not just to those who hurt him, but also to the God who has yet to remove this gossip, remove these liars. That this phrase, how long, indicates that this is not a new pain in David's life that he's wanting to have removed, but that he has been, uh, been long under these attacks. Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And his hope that his enemies would be pushed away, that they would cease to revile him, that hope keeps getting deferred. The word there for hope literally means to be dragged out. My waiting and my hoping has been extended to the limits that I can handle. The problem with waiting for so many of us is the not having any details from our perspective, we have everything figured out as to how life should go and how God is to bring about our life within our time frame. And yet God says, God says you must wait. It's the unknowns of the Christian life, the unknowns of our waiting that make it so hard. And so we say, oh Lord, how long? How long? How long? It, you know, it would be better if even we would even prefer God to say no to us. If, God, if, we knew, if I knew God would eventually answer my prayer with yes, it would be different. But with no such a servants, even a no would be better than the call to wait. No is easy, at least in comparison to God's demand that we wait. No is concrete. We can lament God's no. We can grieve and heal and we can move on when God says no to things. But yes and yes is great because we got the yes. But waiting, when God's answer to our request, to our answer, when his answer is to our how long, wait more, it cuts the cord between us and the ground of assurance in which we find that our feet struggle to find anything to grip onto. And it makes the call to wait that much more difficult. Keep waiting. And we say how long, God says keep waiting. The difficulty of waiting is found in the unknowns, but it's also found, it's also found in the length in the length, the length of our waiting. The phrase indicates that the sufferer has been long in pain. How long? You don't begin asking that question, how long, the first time you suffer something. It's after you've suffered it 10, 20, 30, 100 times when you've gone years and years and years of asking for God to provide and you've yet to see his provision and he continues to tell you the wait. And the difficulty of waiting is found when we have been waiting for a very long time and God answers our questions with wait more. 
I could illustrate this way, the pain of this as to why this is so difficult from an exercise from my old basketball days. One of the exercises that coaches would have you do to try to strengthen you and prepare you for your playing defense is there was this, this, this exercise called the Roman chair. And the Roman chair is when you would take your back and you would place it against the wall and you would get down so that your legs are in a 90 degree angle so that all the weight of your body is upon your upper legs and your glutes. And, but that's when the exercise begins. As you get to 60 and 70 and 80 seconds of being in this, this position, the pain begins to sear through your legs. They call those exercises time under tension, and that is the pain of waiting. That when the, 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 you have been extended in your waiting longer than you think you can bear, and yet God says to you, wait more, and you want to say, enough is enough. I am sick of this. When you're, what are the things that you that internally are looking to heaven about in your own life, and you're saying, dude, come on, what's the deal? I've been asking you for this for a while. You want to do something about this? How long? How long? Waiting is connected to our longing for some sorrow or pain to be removed, or, or for our longing for some unmet joy to finally be met in our life. For David in Psalms verses three, Psalm 62, verse 3 and 4, he indicates that he is waiting for relief from enemies who are making his life miserable. Not those who are punching him in the face, but those who are gossiping and slandering him. And so this is the situation, the circumstance that David is facing. That's the temptation and the thing that he is having to endure that God continues to say, you must wait longer before I remove this from your life. And the question for y'all is, what is yours? What is it that God has asked you to endure to keep waiting? What is the backdrop of waiting in your life? You know, we have a, a lot of babies in this church. This is a great problem to have, a wonderful thing. We have lots of people who are having children. And the comment can be said about our church that there must be something in the water about that place. But understand that that same phrase is a deep and searing pain for others. You see, there are families in our midst who have longed for a very long time, who desire to have children, but so far have been unable. They're doing what? They're waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. There are others in our body who have endured not just years or months, but decades of physical pain. Think of some who have endured 30 and 40 years of such searing pain that they have gone to pain managers all over the country seeking to get some sort of relief and remedy, and yet nothing has come to its aid. And so they wake up each day to the same searing pain in their legs and their back and their shoulders, and they cry out to God and to, for relief, and God says, wait. There's those in our, in our midst I think of so many, even the last couple of weeks that I've, I've talked to, ran to somebody into the store the other day. In the store is tears because of the grief over a child who they long to see repent in the return of the Lord, and yet that child keeps walking further and further away into a deeper and deeper hole. I spoke with one pastor and prayed with a pastor last week on the phone who was going to arrange for his son to go to a homeless shelter because his son had utterly rejected all care from his father. And this was only days after he watched his new grandbaby pass away before his eyes, waiting, longing for God's provision, 
and we wait and we wait. I think of the spouses in our church who long for their husbands to show up, and they've been waiting perhaps for years and decades for their spouse to show up in the way that they long for them to be, the man that God has called them to be, and yet they continue to wait. And their spouse does things that undercuts their intimacy and undercuts their affection and their love and their leadership. And then for all of us, there is the waiting in our sanctification. For me, I wondered how long will God allow me to continue to labor under my addictions and my weaknesses, my frailties that I wake up to each day, and I wonder, when are you going to remove this from me? I wait, and I wait, and I wait. Waiting is the painful backdrop to the Christian life that frames the context of what it means to endure. And in all this, the waiting is painful and difficult because of the role that God has called us to in it. You see, the real difficulty of waiting is this, is that if you're going to wait rightly, then the number one thing you're going to have to do is wait. (laughs) The answer of what to do when you're tired of waiting is waiting some more. And the answer to your waiting by God, when you come to him and say, how long must I wait? He says, wait more. We say, I want an action plan. I want 11 steps. But the command that God continually gives as if he is a guru on a hill with a twinkle in an eye is like the mystic saying, wait some more. This sounds so mystical and so spiritual. And at first we might say to ourselves, oh yes, you just embrace the waiting. But after a while of waiting for so long with hope deferred, you kind of want to say that is garbage. I'm weary of being told to wait. But waiting in the scriptures is not an accident. It is not the breathy wisdom of some guru on a hill or some mystic, but it is the command and call of God. Listen to some of these verses from other places in the Psalms. Psalm 27, 14 says this, wait for the Lord. That's a command. 31, 20, imperative. Be strong and let your heart take courage. And again, wait for the Lord. Psalm 31, 24. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Psalm 37 says it multiple times. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Then in verse 9. For the evildoers shall be caught off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And then in verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. We are called and commanded to wait, and yet it is a painful call upon our life. And the seemingly impossible part of the call to wait is that the way David describes that faithful waiting is what we might call soul silence. A waiting that has a soul silence to it. You see it in verse 1. How does David describe his waiting? He says, I wait in silence. My soul waits in silence. Now understand what David means here is, what it doesn't mean is that he is not it doesn't mean he is not being, he's not praying to God. It doesn't mean that he's not calling out to God. It doesn't mean that he's simply humming to himself. No, he is calling out to God. He is singing and worshiping God in this psalm. It doesn't mean that you don't throw your sorrows upon a Christian friend. The Hebrew word here actually is dumia, which means soul rest, silent, restful waiting. His soul is at rest. What that means is he's, by the silence, is that the disposition of his soul is that he waits in a place where he is perfectly at rest with God's will for his life. That he rests in who the Lord is for him. This is soul rest. What David says that waiting involves not action plans, 
but leading one's soul to a place where the disposition of is, I can rest in the character and goodness of God. This is soul silence. When your soul has been brought to the point where the agging demands, the, the doubts, the fears, and the general racing and manic pacing of all of our questions are finally silenced before the greatness of God. The resting is not there because there is no need for God's provision. No, we definitely feel our need for his provision. But it's in spite of our need for him to show up that we submit ourselves to God and we get quiet before him and his timing and we submit our ways to him. So let's summarize where we are in the pain of waiting. God says, wait, and we say, how long? God says, I'm not gonna tell you. We say, okay, fine. Well, what do I do in the meantime? And God says, you wait some more. And you say, very funny, God, how do I do that? And God says, trust me. Isn't that annoying? Is there rather you want to say, God, could you give me something a little bit more clear, a little bit less vague than simply trust me? Doesn't that make you want to close your eyes and sigh in frustration, frustration at the Lord? You say, listen, I wasn't even thinking about waiting on the Lord when I got up this morning. But now, Henley, you have brought it up, and now I'm thinking about all the things that I've been waiting on God about and been praying about for years to change and to provide. And frankly, now I'm struggling in my doubt to trust the Lord. And the answer in this moment is simply to trust the Lord. This does not seem fair. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, and that's what the psalmist is saying. That the call to wait is perhaps the most deliberate act of God, putting his hands on our shoulders, taking our gaze and looking at us in the eye and saying, do you trust me? It is God's own very act of challenge of our faith, looking at this in the eye and saying, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Now, this helps bring into sharp focus what we are to do in our waiting. You say, what? Yes, we do get to do something in waiting. In this call to wait, in which everything about it seems like a call to do nothing, a call to be passive, a call to be active, is actually a call to engage in the soul fight of faith because God is looking at you and saying, do you trust me? And so here's, I want to look, at, look for the rest of our time this morning. It's simply the key to waiting. The key to waiting, and the key to waiting is this, is speaking to your soul. David said that the endurance for faithful waiting comes from a soul at rest and its trust in the Lord. But how does David get there to that place of trust? We might ask it of ourselves, how do we get to a place where our soul's disposition is quiet and settled and secure, resting in the Lord? Well, it is a fight, and it requires you to fight with words, talking to your soul. It's what David does. Look at verses 5 through 11. In this, David is talking in multiple directions. First, he talks to himself. It says it in verse 5. For God alone, O my soul. That's who he's talking to. He's speaking to his soul. O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. Speaking of God. In other words, what I'm saying is that before we reach, you can reach the place where you're waiting faithfully. And waiting faithfully means that you have rested your soul in the goodness and character of God. It requires the fight of speaking directly to your soul. David says to his own soul, your hope comes from God. He is becoming a preacher to himself. And what David says to his soul, your hope is in the Lord. Now this frames the two ways, the two ways in verses 5 through 11 in which David is specifically the directions that he's going to speak to his soul. First, see that David calls his soul to turn away from anything or anyone 
that beckons him to cast his gaze and trust in anything other than the Lord. Psalm 62, verse 10, says it this way. He says, put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set your heart not on them. David is saying to both his own soul and to those around him, your power, that's what extortion is, using power and threats and schemes, he's saying those things can't fix the things that you're waiting for. Don't trust in your power and abilities and your own wisdom to fix life. The temptation in a season of waiting is to take matters into your own hands, even to the point of disobedience. And there's multiple examples of this in the scriptures. Think of Abraham, where God says, you're going to have a child, a child of promise. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait. And ultimately, what does David do? David and Sarah take God's promises into their own hands, and they say, we will wait no longer. And he takes Sarah's servant and commits adultery with her. Saul, the King Saul, who's called to wait for the prophet, to make sacrifices, and to ask God's permission before he goes into battle, and he waits, and he waits, and he sees the opportunities, the strategic opportunities seemingly go by the wayside, and so he does the sacrifices himself and gets things going himself. He refuses to wait obediently. And when we have been waiting for a very long time, often the temptation is to take matters into our own hands, and do something sinful, or, or have the heart of sin, which is this, to trust in our own abilities to fix life. Now, real quick, I don't want to be move into the realm of extra-biblical land here. There might be times, yes, where God is calling you to act and to do things. This is not a call to say that if you have a child who is wayward that you never write to them or challenge them. The question is, are you trusting in your own prayers and your own efforts and your own abilities and your own wisdom, and your own words to bring about the thing that you're waiting for? Four times in this passage, it says God alone. God alone, that is the call. The call is to preach to your soul to say, what are the things that I am tempted to trust in besides the Lord that would cause me to get up and cease waiting on him? What are the things besides the God alone that I'm looking to to bring about what I've longed for? In other words, David is saying to his soul, soul, avoid at all costs those things that remove your trust from him. And instead, what does he say? Instead, reflect, preach to your soul, speak to your soul about how your hope is in the Lord. Look at verses 11 and 12, how it ends, this psalm. He said, once God, once God has spoken, he said, his soul is listening to God's voice. Twice I have heard this, that power belongs to the Lord and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. What does David do? He speaks to his soul. He says, avoid those things that you would trust in besides the Lord and reflect instead on the trustworthiness of the Lord. And he focuses primarily on God's power and God's love. God's power speaks to God's ability, God's omnipotent, the omnipotent one who has the ability to provide all that we need in that which we are waiting for. His decisions for us his love for us, he, can, he reflects on that where he can see that in God and his perfect love for us provides all that we need 
when we need it most, and he knows when that moment is. His decisions for us are out of love, including his call for us to wait. When he says wait, he does so because, not because he doesn't have the ability to provide, and he doesn't say wait because he is malevolent and just likes to keep things away from you. No, he says wait, or he says no, because he has something better for you in your waiting. And so David says, soul, your God is powerful. Soul, your God is loving. Therefore, soul, you're not waiting because of something wanting in God's ability or because of some malevolence in God's plan for you. But soul, trust. Soul, trust in God's power and God's love for you. So let's just do that briefly this morning. Let's reflect on one particular story from the life of Jesus where we see God's call to wait. From the story of God, we see God's timing, Jesus' odd timing with Jairus' daughter. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus is walking along when suddenly a prominent religious man named Jairus runs up and says that his daughter is dying and pleads for Jesus to come heal her. And Jesus says, yes. And so you can begin to feel the movement of the narrative of the crowd. Jesus is the divine, large crowd following Jesus, moving towards Jairus' city and Jairus' home. Jesus is the divine ambulance coming to save the day. But as he and the crowd move forward to this man's house, a woman who has, as a no-name, who has an issue of bleeding for years and years and years, pushed through the crowd to touch Jesus' cloak. And it says that Jesus felt the power go out of him. And he stops and he talks to this woman. And you want to ask the question in Mark 5, if you're in, from Jairus' perspective, everything about it is moving towards saving Jairus' daughter. This is a woman who's had an issue for years and years. It's not an issue of life and death. She can go another day with this, this issue. Jesus, what are you doing stopping and talking to this woman? This girl is dying. This is the scratch, the record, pause, the tape, slain on the bright sort of moment in the narrative. What kind of timing is this, Jesus. You're not doing correct triage for the ER, Jesus. What kind of priorities are these, Jesus? Tim Keller says in his own exegesis of this passage, says that this passage is, Jesus could be accused here of medical malpractice, that he's failing to triage correctly who he's supposed to care for in this moment. And isn't this how we feel about God in our own waiting? God, this is divine malpractice, how long you've made me wait for a child or made me wait for a spouse, or made me wait for my child to return home. Enough of this waiting. Well, things go from bad to worse in the story in Mark 5. A servant of Jairus comes up and says that the little girl has died. All hope is now lost, right? But Jesus turns to Jairus and says, do not fear, believe. Do not fear, Jairus. In other words, it is the moment in which Jesus is doing for so many of you this morning, he is putting his hands on his shoulder and he's saying, do you trust me? Jesus is essentially listening, saying, listen, I will not be hurried. My timing is best. Will you trust my plan? God's timing is so frustrating for us, isn't it? His timing is different than our timing. And Jesus is saying, my grace and my love are compatible even when it appears that you're, it's out of sorts with the timing that appears right. Even when my grace and my love seems out of sort with my call to ask you to wait longer. You say, I don't know, Jesus. How can I know I can trust you? Well, we have to look at the rest of the story. You see, Jesus goes to Jairus' house and he sees and hears all the people weeping. And he says something laughable and offensive to them. He says, do not cry. The little girl is merely sleeping. 
Now she was really dead, but Jesus goes and says that this is all that death is to him. Like the, the grip of sleep, that's all that death is to him. And he goes up to the room and it says in the account that he takes the little girl's hand and he says these words in the Aramaic, Talitha kum, Talitha kum, which means this, little girl arise. And she does. Then I want you to see two things here. With a word, Jesus reaches into death with a word, he says, arise, and the death that reigns over here, her is broken. This is the power of God that David talks about. The power of God. And then you see the love of God. That Talitha Kum is like a pet name, little girl, little girl. My, my daughter's middle name is Tov. It's a Hebrew word, which means beautiful or good. But we have a, a pet name for her. It's Tophers. Tophers. My little Tophers arise. This is the, the words of a, a fatherly affection. What would you see here as Jesus' power wed to his fatherly love and affection for us in this scene? The, don't you see that this is a God who's putting his hands on your shoulders and saying, do you see my love for you? And yet do you feel the power in my hands? Will you reflect on that? One final story. In the, in the magician's nephew, which is part of the Chronicles of Narnia series, C.S. Lewis writes, it's the, actually the creation account. It comes before in the timeline, before Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and there's a little boy in that account whose name is Diggory Kirk. And you learn in the, this series of the story, account of the story, that Diggory's mother is very sick. You see, the Diggory comes into this pre-existent world of Narnia, and he watches Narnia get created by Aslan, and Diggory sees the powerful Aslan, how amazing he is and how powerful he is, and he begins to think that if Aslan is this powerful, perhaps he can heal his mother. Now, as this, the account goes on, Aslan and Diggory get to know each other, and Aslan gives Diggory a job to do, a job that involves fixing a problem that Diggory actually caused. And Aslan says, are you ready? Are you ready to take up the task that I've given you? Now, Diggory had thought for a moment of saying, I will help, but only if you're willing to help my mother. But he realized that Aslan was not somebody you get to be, negotiate with. But when he said yes, a wave of sadness came over Diggory. He said yes to the mission, but he thought of his mother and the great hopes he had and how all his hopes were dying away and he had a lump entering his throats and his tears were in his burning in his eyes and he looked at the eye in the eye of the lion and said, will you please, please, can't you give me something to cure my mother? And up until then, all he could focus on was the lion's great feet and his enormous claws. But in this moment, when he looked up into the lion's face, it shocked him. And here's how Lewis describes it. What he saw was the tawny face of the lion bent down so close to his own. And wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big and bright tears compared to Diggory's own tears, which seemed small, that Diggory realized that the lion must feel sorrier about his mother and her sickness than Diggory himself. Would you see that? He sees the power of the lion, but then he saw the affection in his eyes. That the thing that Diggory most longed for Aslan longed for even more. He saw the power, but then he saw the love. The power of Aslan was harnessed to his love. And because God is all-powerful, which means he is not being held back by something outside of his will, that's keeping him from giving what you what you long for. 
but nor also the power is that power is also wed with God's love, which means that the reason why you are still waiting for that baby, for that spouse, for retirement, for peace in your marriage, for that child to be restored to the Lord, for healing to come to your body, the reason you are still waiting is because God loves you. And I don't understand his timing, and maybe we will not ever understand it until heaven, but he says, look at my hands and look at the power of them and then see the nail scars. See, God never promises re reason for our waiting. He rarely offers an answer, but he does offer himself. And so with these words, hope, rock, fortress, that David repeats multiple times in Psalm 62, these are not merely physical concepts of God. They're actually fulfilled in a person known as Jesus. And if you're sitting here waiting, the display of gospel love, of God's love and God's power wed together, then you see it at the cross. And if you see the cross, then you can know, as it says in Romans, how, if he will give you his son, how much more will he give you all things that are good for you? This is a God that you can trust, that you can get quiet before, even in the pain of your waiting. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that these, these concepts of your power and your love would be pressed down upon us. Would you make them real to us? God, for some in this room, they, they question whether you have the power to do what we long for you to do. So would we feel the strength of your arms, the might of your name? For those who question your goodness, who wonder whether you really want good things for them, God, would they see the, see the nail scars in your son's hand? Would they see the tears in your eyes? And would they experience the beckon of your arm which longs for us to come and rest in you. Would we do that? Beckon us to your presence, Lord. Help us to speak our ways, our way into your presence, Lord, and bring our souls to rest. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.